Hi there, my name is Felix and this is Cramspot. Thank you so much for tuning in for what is promising to be a really exciting new episode because today we are going to be looking at a really special form of wildlife trafficking and that is the illegal hunting of rhinos in South Africa. On Sherlock, which is the knowledge management portal by the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, I'm going to link you that in the show notes, you can find uh, a lot of different cases on, on rhino horn trafficking, but you can also find different national legislations and laws governing that issue. So make sure to check out the Sherlock knowledge management portal. For this episode today, we will actually not going to talk about a specific case, but rather explore the phenomenon of rhino hunting itself. And for that, I'm incredibly happy to introduce you to Dr. Annette Hübschler. Annette was born in Namibia, but now lives and works in South Africa. She has a PhD from the International Max Planck Research, Research School, as well um, as an MPhil in Criminology from the University of Cape Town. Annette is a senior research fellow at the University of Cape Town as well, and she conducts her research into the governance of safety and security, and she also has this really special focus on illegal wildlife economies and also environmental future. Much of her work you will be able to find on Sherlock's bibliographic database as well. Again, check the show notes for more information. But now let's get started. Hi, Annette. Welcome to Crime Spot. I'm sending you good vibes to South Africa from Austria. Thank you for being here with us. Hi, Felix. Nice to, nice to be joining you. So perhaps for starters, what actually is rhino poaching? I mean, I know what a rhino is, um, but why are they being poached uh, or that is illegally hunted in the first place? Oh, let me start off uh, by saying, um, basically, we usually talk about illegal hunting. Poaching is often sort of a bit of a, pejor a pejorative term. So, you know, that we, there's essentially, there's a juxtaposition between, um, you know, some people who can legally hunt a rhino and then others that can't. So, essentially, rhino poaching refers to the illegal act of hunting and killing a rhino to remove body parts which usually are the rhino horns so the african rhinos have two horns the asian rhinos have one rhino horn and these horns trade for a lot of money on consumer markets so uh you know at a few years ago, at the height of the rhino poaching crisis, uh, when I was conducting research in, in some of the consumer countries, the going rate was between 40,000 to 65,000 US dollars per kilogram. So that's a lot of money for, for wow. rhino horn. Um, there are some other body parts that are sought after, um, predominantly um, the tail and genitals, and they play some role in traditional medicine and also just in some uh, religious ceremonies. So, yeah, that's in short what rhino perching refers to. Wow, okay. So they're being po poached for the different body parts that are being used either in, you said, in traditional medicine 
Um, and I was about to ask what, what actually motivates people to poach the rhinos in the first place, but then it, it seems like it's the, the monetary incentive or is there more to it? Uh, there is a lot more to it. Um, of course, the environment, the economic incentives are, are huge. Um, if you think about um, a South African poacher, somebody that goes um, hunting for rhinos in protected areas in South Africa, will with one hunt often earn more than a rural res resident earns in a whole um, year of just doing a normal sort of uh, rural job of, of being a farm worker or working in a protected area. So that gives you sort of pause to think, wow, um, that there are definitely economic, economics incentives. But, um, in my research for convicted rhino poachers and also people that are still actively engaging in poaching, um, I was very lucky a few years back to, to be interviewing so-called rhino kingpins um, that were actively organizing rhino poaching and um, just hunts and transportation of rhino horn. And what came out was that there were other um, reasons for, for rhino poaching. So for one, um, community actors, so people that live around protected areas, would support rhino poachers and rhino poaching economies because there was generally a bit of unhappiness about conservation practices, also the establishment of protected areas. And in many cases, um, protected areas also involved um, the theft of land or the dispossession of local communities. So essentially, rhinos are protected on land that used to belong to local people. These local people have not only lost land, but they also no longer can make use of this land. So, for example, for the purposes of subsistence hunting or harvesting of um, other natural resources, fishing, wood, um, you name it. So there is quite a lot of unhappiness with uh, um, conservation practices, but also in general, just protected areas. Then um, what I found is that there was sort of a bit of a generational um, difference between older and younger poachers. So when I interviewed older poachers, they often mentioned that um, they went poaching because they wanted to to contribute to the well-being of their families, uplift their communities. And just basically there was sort of quite an altruistic and family, if not community-orientated motivation to um, to to poach. For younger poachers, I often found that there was sort of not that much altruism. There was more interest in fast-moving consumer goods, smartphones, and access to fast cars, women, you know, it's so often, you know, what young mm. teenagers and younger men sort of aspire to. So it was quite a, a different set of um, reasons. I mean, some people were just um, interested in risk-taking behavior, thrill of hunting. So the, the very interesting motivations that came up during my field work. Wow, so it really goes beyond purely economic reasons and then even within the economic reasons you mentioned like the differences in generation so it's, it really seems um yeah like a wide variety of different reasons to engage in rhino poaching and i know that you have been doing recording a podcast 
which goes a bit more on the community side of things. So we're going to link this in the show notes rather than open this chapter up before. But I have a question with respect to the uh, kingpins that you were mentioning at the beginning, because we always try to understand the organized crime dimensions of certain phenomena. And kingpins is something that attracts logically a lot of attention. So I I wonder to perhaps you could walk us through the sort of supply chain of, let's say, a rhino horn, just take that as a commodity and and sort of describe a bit how organized crime is manifested in that. Is that really like one big organization? Do the poachers, based on your experience, do the poachers always know the kingpin, for example, or is it more like different actors who are loosely connected? What's, What's your opinion on that? So what I found quite interesting with regards to the broader rhino horn economy and note that I'm talking of an economy and not sort of an illegal market per se was that I found that, that there was sort of an interface between illegal and legal rhino horn markets. And what I mean by that is that uh, certainly in South Africa, we, we do have um, a semi-legal market for, for rhino horn. And what I mean by that is that uh, within international um, regulatory frameworks, um, and by that I mean CITES, the Convention in, um, on the International Trade and Endangered Species of Fauna and Flora, um, South Africa is allowed um, basically trophy hunting. So essentially um, r- white rhinos, one of the sub- uh, subspecies, can be hunted um, and basically um, the hunter can keep the um, rhino horns for for personal use. So essentially, you know, have a rhino horn collection or whatever at home. It has been quite interesting that um, a lot of these um, rhino horns have actually found their way into illegal markets and and not to your traditional markets in, in Asia, but often even to, to European markets or Europe has acted as a transshipment point en route to final markets. So there were, as for example, trophy hunters from East European countries that arrived in South Africa and hunted for rhinos. And these rhino horn or rhino trophies ended up um, sort of transiting via the home countries of these hunters to, to Asian markets or Either, yeah, so basically to the final market. So this is one aspect of, uh, of the rhino horn economy. So the, basically the legal sort of legal market, which involves also, um, trade of, of animals. So essentially, um, uh, live rhinos can be traded amongst, um, game, game, game farms and game, you know, in the game industry. Then the- okay. Uh, one, one, one question if you have me. Yes. Um, just to make sure I understand that means that I, for example, I'm German. I could fly to South Africa, get one of these CITES permits or like a hunting license, shoot a rhino, keep the horn and take it home with me. Completely legal. Yes. So essentially, um, our regulations have changed because we, um, um, about 10 years ago, we suddenly saw a barrage of trophy hunters arriving on South African shores that were from non-traditional trophy hunting countries. For example, um, some countries in Southeast Asia, which have very little tradition in big game hunting. 
And that caused um, um, concern and essentially a big organized crime a network was um, was discovered, which was essentially using a pseudo hunting scheme to to export um, legally hunted rhino horn to illegal markets, which is really interesting. So nowadays you have to prove that you're a member of a hunting club. And you have to show that you have a track history of, of, you know, big game hunting. Uh, ah. So, so there has been a crackdown. And of course, um, another regulation is that, um, you can only hunt one, one rhino per year. So a natural person can only hunt one rhino per year. One rhino per year. And it, just to come back to this very interesting organized crime syndicate from 10 years ago, what they ended up doing is they got sex workers involved in Johannesburg. So essentially these sex workers became stand in hunters. So, so essentially this organized crime syndicate could hunt more rhinos because they had more people with passports, illegal persons hunting rhinos, which was a very interesting scheme. Fortunately, it was, uh, you know, discovered and um, the people were basically taken to court. And um, yeah, so one of the big um, success stories. But to return to, to the illegal sort of the legal market in rhino horn that that extends to you know illegal hunting on private and public land so we in south africa we don't just have rhinos and in protected areas but uh private individuals can also keep rhinos um on, on private land, there's some there are some regulations like you have to have a game fence um, to own to, to own rhinos, and you know there's sort of a minimum of security provisions that have been provided. So there have been there have been um, poaching incidents both on pri- private and public land, and it's difficult to to provide sort of a stereotypical account. We've had you know very well um, healed. Um, let's call it uh, people in the farming community, in the game industry, even wildlife veterinarians involved in rhino poaching. And then you also have sort of your low level sort of a rural, um, rural foot soldiers that have been supporting syndicated rhino poaching in public parks. So it's a it's a wild mix. So at, one has to sort of move away from this conception that it's only poor people that go um, perching for rhinos. In terms of the supply chain, um, if you imagine, so essentially um, a rhino hunt starts long before a rhino's um, shot and killed. There's a, there's there's obviously this organization and planning and strategy involved. Usually a kingpin or hunt organizer will put together a team, a poaching team, and we're now talking specifically about hunting excursions going into national parks. So typically a team will consist of three people. You will have a um, spotter, a shooter, and then also a carrier, so somebody who carries um, the rhino horn. And um, usually... 
um, these teams or these yeah these hunting teams have some form of information intelligence where to find rhinos where um, ranges are located so there's quite a lot of information um, available to to purchase before they even go on to their perching expeditions um, once they once they've located a rhino, the gruesome act of um, killing the rhino um, happens. And usually, the um, usually these hunting gangs have access to uh, large caliber, a high caliber um, hunting rifles. So, and and what we what we found is that um, the hunters are often very professional. So they do have a in many cases, a military background. Um, we do still have around, um, especially around the Kruger National Park, there's still a lot of uh, military veterans that were um, involved in, in the Civil War in Mozambique and other, you know, the liberation struggles around the region. So there are people with uh, firearm skills. Um, yeah. So once once the rhino has been dehorned, I'm going to spare you the gory details of how that happens the horn usually is taken horns it's usually two with um, african rhinos are taken out and usually the there's a very quick sort of uh exchange so um you have transporters you have um basically somebody the the, the rhino kingpin usually receives the rhino horn and then organizes the onward journey of the horn and um from say if we use Kruger National Park as the site of the poaching, um, often the rhino horn would um, go to the Mozambique, uh, to, uh, basically to Mozambique, which is just across the border, and from there to to different sort of international sort of transport um, points. So this could usually it is the um, international airports so a lot of rhino horn we found usually actually goes the most expedient and fastest route out to consumer markets so there's no there no there's no complicated layering of you know a different um, means of transportation there's usually a road transport from the poaching site and then um horn rhino horn will leave southern africa via a plane to to consumer markets some things that, that you said that that's like surprised me is like first of all that you did you mentioned that there's actually two ways of how how like the legal and the illegal economy inter intersect if i understood correctly so there's on one hand legally hunted horns that make their way into the illegal market but there's then also with these like poaching or like illegal hunting expeditions that you mentioned that's illegally hunted horn that makes it into the illegal, illegal or perhaps even legal economy. Do you do you know how much such a horn weighs actually, or like the the, the larger of the two horns? Um, the average weight of white rhinos has, um, was given to me by a conservationist in Kruger National Park is about five point five kilogram. So that is like so that's the small and the big horn. That's an average. So this is based mm -hmm. on data from the Kruger National Park. 
Um, look, they're like divergent views. Um, the, the black rhino horns, um, weigh a little less. It depends, you know, the, on the age of the rhino, gender, <laughs> whether mm-hmm, their, their history, how much fighting they've done. <laughs> so. Yeah. And I understand that the horn is essentially made of, of carotene, right? That the same sort of protein that our hair and fingernails are made of. So it, it will grow naturally back. It does. So it is a renewable resource, which has led to calls from some sectors in South African society for legalization and opening up um, of a trade in legal, legally grown and sourced rhino horn. I mentioned earlier that we do have a um, game industry. So we do have private individuals that um, basically farm and own rhinos. So some some private individuals a farmer, they have sort of intensive farming operations. Um, other individuals just have rhino reser- reserves for tourism purposes. Um, what a lot of these private um, owners, rhino owners, say is that the costs of securing rhinos has increased tremendously. So rhino poaching has escalated over the past decade, uh, a bit more than a decade now which means um, that the cost of uh, securing rhinos has gone up a lot. So um, especially on private land, um, private owners have invested in, you know, all sorts of technology, anti-poaching units and private security companies to to assist with uh, protecting rhinos. So essentially um, these rhino, many, not all rhino owners are making an argument that, um, in order for them to carry on protecting rhino rhinos, they need to have some source of income, and they basically say that you know trade in rhino horn would assist them. And there are different opinions on whether this is uh, really a well a realistic undertaking. Um, the we obviously we have lots of examples on prohibition and other organized crime markets. The question is, um, are we dealing with a um, species, well, with rhinos that are threatened with extinction? So the question of flooding markets raises a lot of eyebrows, especially amongst conservationists. Right, because you don't know if flushing the market would not create then more demand. Exactly. Leading to more rhinos being poached. Yes. Okay. Yes. And there's also essentially, um, there are some, um, some people say that, uh, you know, there's, there's always going to be demand for wild rhinos. So basically rhinos that have been poached in, in national parks rather than, you know, intensively farmed on private land. Um, I haven't seen much because you want the original. You want the original. So, look, I mean, I, I have some anecdotal evidence when I was conducting research with consumers um, in, in one of the Asian countries where, where I did my field work. Um, I was told that, um, you know, people were interested in consuming, you know, wild rhinos. But this is anecdotal. So one would have to do proper studies on consumer behavior to understand what people want and what the you know what essentially what the demand structure and looks like mm-hmm. and do you it's perhaps a bit early because we're still pretty much in 
in COVID-19 pandemic situation, but is there already any sort of trend that you can, that you can observe any impact on the rhino economy um, that this pandemic has had? Um, there were a few surprising developments. Well, the first development maybe was not surprising at all. So South Africa did have, um, we, well, we're back in lockdown, but we've had some of the most severe lockdowns in the world. And during these lockdowns, um, rhino poaching came down. So there was, um, so rhino poaching numbers reduced tremendously. Unfortunately, since, um, well, we're back in lockdown, but in between lockdowns, there was a spike in poaching incidents again. So this was one of the impacts or, you know, side effects of corona. Um, and then in, I've been speaking to colleagues of mine in, in consumer countries, and what they've observed is that actually the price of rhino horn has come down quite a bit, which I find quite surprising because I would have thought that, you know, while while rhino poaching was going down, that, you know, the price of rhino horn would actually be going up rather than down. So this is quite interesting. This is something that we um, should watch carefully because maybe maybe the new trends in, and, you know, consumption patterns of rhino horn, um, so which might be good news, you know, if consumption is going down, the prices are coming down. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, from, to me, it sounds sounds like optimistic news no like the the fact that that people are less people or fewer people are willing to pay higher prices for for rhino that that sounds promising um and it sort of perhaps brings me to to potentially my, my last question is um we still see rhino poaching taking place so what do you in what in, in your opinion should be done about it are we already on a good track and we just need to com continue um, and yeah, and what is actually done about it? Um, so a lot of my recent work has been focusing on responses to rhino poaching and how to disrupt uh, the supply chain. And, you know, essentially during, during my field work, I try to identify points of intervention where one could really make an impact. And, in the end, my my sort of big aha moment was when I realized, you know, it's 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 going to be very difficult for South African conservationists to make an impact in in consumer countries. What we can do is we can look at um, our responses in South Africa on the ground. And one key aspect that has been missing and. Um, over the, over the past decade has been proper engagement with uh, local communities uh, living close to conservation areas. Um, what has happened in terms of, uh, you know, the response to rhino poaching is that um, local people living close to parks have been actually further and further pushed away and have not been included in responding to, to, to rhino poaching. They're often seen, uh, criminalized. They're seen as poaching communities, um, false economies. Uh, uh, obviously some communities living close to, to national parks and protected areas are home to some of the poachers, but it would be 
it's not correct to assume that everybody is benefiting from rhino perching in such communities. So what we've been working on is just on, on essentially on design principles on including local communities in more meaningful ways in the response to, to rhino perching, but also in, in terms of, you know, um, get, uh, benefiting from conservation in more general terms, which hasn't been happening. Another note of where we can make a difference is by focusing more on, on arresting kingpins. So, um, law enforcement has predominantly been focusing on low hanging fruit. So that would be, you know, the poachers, mm, poachers uh, yeah. which is, uh, it is kind of a typical thing of, um, organized crime. I mean, we find that in traffic, truck trafficking networks as well, that we usually go for low level dealers and smugglers instead of go, uh, going for, you know, the sort of untouchables in the background. So, uh, a lot more focus needs to happen on, on you know, fi- follow the money, who's behind it, who who's sort of call, um, pulling the strings in the background. Um, another concern has been corruption. So there's a lot of uh, corruption within, um, well, let's say, like in national parks and in the cons- uh, conservation community and also in government circles. So, um corruption has to be tackled um and then of course the, it would also help to have better control over transport nodes and training of of officials so that they can recognize illicit wildlife products including rhino horn it's so interesting that the points that you mentioned and it's for me personally it's as interesting the points that you didn't mention because one of the few things that I feel like many people perhaps will have heard of if they have heard of rhino poaching is the formation of um, anti-poaching units. And this has been really like also prominent in the media. There are movies about it. Like on, on Netflix, you can find content on anti-poaching units. There's entire documentaries and series around them. But from from what you just told me, it, it seems like it's not necessarily the best way forward because like that we would again get those low hanging fruits rather than actual, actually the ones who have all the strings in their hands. Yeah. So it's a very interesting question you're asking. Yeah. I'm, I'm of course I'm a criminologist and, um, you know, you never get away from having some form of enforcement. So I'm by no means against some form of, you know, anti-poaching and law enforcement. But unfortunately what we found, um, is that there's been sort of, a bit of a, well, let's call it militarization and securitization of responses to rhino poaching. So, so for example, the Krieger National Park has now, um, ranger, ranger units that, um, use paramilitary tactics, um, in, in protecting rhinos. And, um, you have private security companies, um, protecting rhinos on private land. And, you know, it's, it's, it's becoming more and more a, but I, I hate to call a war on perching because I think it's self-defeating, but, uh, essentially there are some people that talk about a war on perching happening in our national parks and on private land. And from where I sit, um, I've, uh, I've, I've observed and I've documented a lot of human rights abuses linked to this 
securitization, militarization, and I don't think it's the best way forward. Of course, you have to have law enforcement, but there has to be some control as to how this is done. Um, what has worked in Namibia, for example, is to actually get uh, community members um, involved in, in, in anti-perching. So you've got community rhino guards in Namibia. It's been a very successful project. So, so there are other ways of doing law enforcement and um, anti-perching in protected areas. Super interesting. And for, for those listeners who would be keen on, on learning more about what Annette called uh, green securitization, I believe, or securitization, also sometimes called green militarization, we also have a, an, a separated podcast episode on this, which released in January this year. Uh, I will link it in the show notes as well. Annette, this is uh, all, all we had time for today. Unfortunately, thank you so much for, for all these insights. It was really interesting. It's a pleasure. It was a pleasure talking to you. Um, yeah, thank you for giving me the platform. Unfortunately, this is all we had time for today. We hope you have enjoyed this episode, which we jointly produced with Sherlock. Sherlock is the research tool when it comes to finding electronic resources and laws on organized crime. Make sure to check out the show notes of this episode where you can find more information and useful links. And also, if you haven't done so yet, make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Stay healthy and stay tuned for the next episode.